good to see you all here. I'm glad to be back teaching this morning. Slightly. Slightly. Yeah. Got some of the bottled up energy cleared out. Our memory verse this morning we've been using for several weeks. Let's say it together, please. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Quite a verse. So in our previous two lessons, the last two sessions we had, we talked about the Sermon on the Mount and how it's a huge change that Jesus is revealing from the works-based Judaism of the Pharisees. And then in the second lesson, Christ showed that, excuse me, in the first lesson, Christ showed that God judged the thoughts and intents of our hearts and that no one could earn heaven because no matter how well we might control our actions, We're still evil to the core. In the second lesson last week, he denied the public displays of the Pharisees and spoke of private devotions and that a a work done for God in private anonymously has eternal value. But if you're getting praised for what you do here on earth, that's your reward. And as usual, we will be using readings by Alexander Scorby, Now, the Sermon on the Mount has been described as the greatest recorded sermon in history. It's also probably the most misquoted. There's a long list of phrases that have come into the English language which come out of the King James translation of this sermon. Do unto others. Don't cast pearls before swine. Love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. A wolf in sheep's clothing. Then there's the Beatitudes, the Lord's Prayer, the Golden Rule. And everybody yoinks these little pieces, takes them out of context, and makes them mean whatever they want. Inside the context, they have a different meaning. And what, what, what I've loved about these three lessons is the fact that they forced me to look at the Lord's Prayer as, as a whole, as a unified sermon with a unified message. It's long enough in the Bible that often we don't just read through it in one sitting and consider as we're going, but as a good sermon, it builds point on point on point. And now we're coming to the conclusion this week where we're going to be looking at the so what of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to start here in the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Chapter 7. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye? And behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Talking about Give not that which is holy unto the dogs. We're, we're done right now, brother. So this passage teaches us not to judge, right? No. 
and yes and no, and yes and no. We talk about misquoted passages out of the Sermon on the Mount. This is probably the worst one. People love to hide behind this idea and say, don't judge me. But is this really the message? No. It's a warning against being a judge. Okay. It's it's more than a, it's not a forbiddance. It doesn't say, thou shalt not judge. It says, judge not lest. If we put that in modern English, it would not say, do not judge. It would say, when you judge, understand also that. These five verses, which everyone wants to interpret as, don't judge me, you have no right to judge, your God told you not to judge, is, should be interpreted as, be cautious and careful when you judge. Recognize there is only one judge, and that's God. And he's given us his standards in the Bible, right? We have a responsibility, first of all, to exercise that judgment in our own lives. Right? We should be judging the things we do and discerning, are we doing good or are we doing evil? Because if we can't judge against God's standards in our own life, we have no idea how to live our lives. Does that make sense? So he can't be forbidding judgment. Now, many also use this passage as the basis for social tolerance. As I said, your God told you not to judge me. There are many ways to the top of the mountain. We must be tolerant. The church needs to be more accepting of modern societal ideas. After all, they really didn't understand homosexuality back then. And they didn't understand, they didn't love these people the way they should. And they didn't understand the realities of modern life and how difficult it is to gather together. And certainly, they didn't have television. This wasn't Christ's message. Christ did not write, God did not write Matthew 7, 7, 1 through 5 as a basis for don't judge anybody ever. But if you're going to judge, first of all, you'd best judge righteously. As I said, there's one standard. Now, this message flows from the two previous parts, technically three. We didn't study the very first part of the Sermon on the Mount. But from the last two parts we've talked about, it flows logically from those themes because his sermon is aimed at Judaism. Judaism was and is very judgmental. The Pharisees and the related religious police and I use that term sarcastically because they didn't actually, you know, they weren't actually religious police, but they might as well have been going around and telling people, you're breaking the law. We have no prison for your sort, but we'll look down our noses at you and tell everyone about you because you're a terrible person. That was the core of Judaism. People setting themselves up as self-righteous judges. I'll tell you what, Baptistism can also be very judgmental. Don't 
throw too many stones at those Pharisees. Unless you take a close look at what you're doing. So they and we are warned that the same standards by which we judge others will be applied to us. Now, does this keep us out of heaven? No, because we do not work our way into heaven. We get into heaven, right, by accepting the sacrifice of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ. So if God says we'll be judged by the same standard we're judging other people, what's he talking about? It's right there on the slide. He's talking about the judgment seat of Christ. That's where we're told in the Bible we will be judged. Our works will be judged for their righteousness, yeah? So if you're a mean-spirited, judgmental person, do not expect quite as much grace when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the reality is there may be judgment in this life. Because if you are an embarrassment to God here, he may take you out of the game. There's evidence in the Bible that it happened. And if it happened then, it's happening today. So we are warned that if we're going to judge, first of all, we better judge righteously. And Christ gives a beautifully simple example. Now, a a moat is a speck of dust. It's the sort of thing you get in your eye, and it's kind of irritating. Anyone enjoy getting little flecks of stuff in their eyes? (laughs) It's just unpleasant. And so you, helping your brother, want to get the dust mode out of their eye, but you have a beam in yours. Now, everybody, when they say beam, I think always visualizes a two-by-four or maybe a four-by-four. Remember what we talked about a bunch of lessons ago in the construction of houses in in, uh, Galilee and in Judea, lumber is scarce. And what lumber exists is very twisted and crooked. So they built the houses out of stone. The beam we're talking about is a 2 by 4 15 made of solid stone. It's even worse than the mental picture you have. Okay? And it's, it's, it's appropriate because a speck of dust is stone. And a beam is stone. So it makes it a better analogy. Don't think of that beam as wood. Think of it as a huge, heavy chunk of stone which bridges the span of a house to support the roof. That's what a beam is in this context. And Christ makes it pretty clear who he's speaking to, the religious authorities. They judged everyone on their standards of the law, not recognizing that they condemned themselves with every self-righteous judgment because they thought they could earn their way into heaven. And Christ says that's not the way it works. The bar is much higher than you think. We were picking on my my eldest daughter, Caitlin. Um, It wasn't, it was something minor like her absent-mindedness or something. And, uh, you know, she says, well, you know, I'm trying to do better. And Amber's like, low bar, meaning... It's not real hard to do better. I said, yeah, it's mostly a tripping hazard. You know, Caitlin's bar of remembrance is around here. But that's not what we're talking about. Although I'll tell you what, the bar the the Pharisees thought they were setting was very high. But they they didn't recognize that it was at 20,000 feet. God's bar. You cannot get there from here. You cannot earn your way to salvation. You notice the heading here, judge graciously... 
Let's keep talking about that. Christ could not have been speaking out against all judgment in these five verses because the very next verse requires judgment. He says in verse 6, beginning, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs. How do you know if something's holy or not? How do you know? This is the audience participation portion of the lesson. How do you know something's holy? Anybody. Okay, but, but what determines? How do you determine it's holy? You judge against God's standards. You're making a judgment. You're deciding. You're making a value assessment, which is a, a judgment. So the verse right after, verses 1 through 5, where he says, judge not, he says, judge. So it's not a prohibition against judging. It's a warning of the consequences of judging. He does not forbid removing the moat from your brother's eye. He just says, get the beam out of your own first so that you can take care of your brother better. There is nothing in this passage that says, do not righteously judge for, first of all, your own actions, and that's the removing of the beam, and then maybe offering some loving, helpful, gracious advice to a brother. But remember that in doing that, you're setting yourself up to be judged yourself. And this is just a continuation of, his, of the Sermon on the Mount's main thrust of a denouncement of Pharisaical Judaism. And make no mistake, that's the same Judaism that has descended down to today. Salvation by works, showy public devotion, and judgmentalism. That's the core of the then Jewish religion and the today Jewish religion. The message here, which harmonizes with the rest of the Bible, is go ahead and judge righteously. That is, by God's standard, not by your own internal standard, but by God's standard. Remember, one of the things that Jesus poked at the Pharisees for was tacking on extra stuff on top of God's word. And we do it too. Go back to the source. Look at God's standard. And don't judge on your own little perceptions. Look at God's standards. And do it in God's way, granting grace. Recognize that if you judge, if you step out and choose to judge another person, then you stand as a shepherd. And God's expectations of you are high. When you judge, step back and look at the sort of company you're keeping. Is it Christ next to you? Are you judging by his standards and giving people his grace? Or are you standing with the Pharisees? With your set of rules, and if they don't measure up, they're not good enough. That's the point. Next passage, please, brother. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Christ's sermon now segues into his conclusion. 
Lots of us have practiced listening to preachers and going, yep, there it is. There's his conclusion. We'll be out of here in 10 minutes if we're lucky. <laughs> you can see it in Christ's sermon as well as you analyze it. He's, he's lesson, 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 warning, lesson, starting to roll into the conclusion now. This is not just a sermon about how to live your life. Although we started there, especially in chapter 5, which we have not discussed in these three lessons, this is a lesson with, message with eternal consequences, and it calls for a decision. Now, oh, straight and narrow, common English phrase drives me insane because it's a horrible misquote. Okay? Straight, S-T-R-A-I-T, is not just an archaic spelling or the accidental use of a homonym, a strait is a narrow passage, like the Strait of Gibraltar. It means narrow or restricted. Think about the bathroom door in your house, which probably is narrower than every other doorway. That is a straight doorway. Think about the wraparound canvas blazer with the sleeves that tie in the back. A straight jacket. It restricts your movement. Oh, that did not go well in the translation. It did not like that font at all. Okay. So, Christ's point. There are two exit doors to, for, from life. Everybody gets to go through one or the other. There's a wide path. It's a super highway, like over here, going out to Katy. 28 lanes of traffic. It's easy. Most people choose that path, but it leads to destruction. And then there is the straight path. Not straight as an arrow, but restricted, narrow. It is straight and narrow. It's just a repetition of the same idea. But it leads to eternal life. And I had a point when I was about to make, and I think it's gone. So... One simple judgment that you can make is as you're moving through life, look around. If you've got a whole lot of company with you, you may not be on the straight way. You may be on the superhighway, the highway to hell, as it's been called in popular uh, nomenclature. Let's keep reading on continuing now in verse 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Now he's going to move on to warning against false teachers. He's still poking at the Pharisees, because they are false teachers. But he's also warning his followers against those that will follow on afterwards, that now claim to be Christian teachers. And he's still encouraging judgment. You're judging them by their fruits. Now, only God can see their hearts, but we are called to exercise judgment using God's standards and see what fruit a teacher or leader is producing before we choose to follow them. And again, simple and clear examples to an agricultural people who clearly understand there are 
thorn bushes, and the only fruit they produce is thorns. And there are fig trees and grapevines, and they produce good fruit. And you do not expect to find figs growing on a thorn bush or thorns growing on a fig tree. It wouldn't make sense. It's not consistent. Let's keep reading in Matthew. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Christ, just in the previous passage, advised his followers to judge potential leaders and teachers by their fruit. But now he goes beyond that idea. In the end, it's not the fruit that gets you into heaven, but the root. Right? So this passage very much ties in with the previous one. He's warning us to watch out for false teachers. But now he's warning false teachers, you don't get in by your works. And who is he picking on, first of all, who's standing right there in the best seats in the house, listening to Christ's message? The Pharisees who think they're going to get in on their works. We can look upon the surface, but God looks upon the heart, and it's accepting Christ that is the only port of entry into heaven. All great works of righteousness performed outside of Christ are vain. They're empty. They accomplish nothing in God's economy. Christ goes so far as to, claim, as to call the people doing these works workers of iniquity. And think about it. If I set up a church here in Houston and I give it some wonderful modern name and I encourage everyone attending that church don't worry about your sin. God loves you. He's going to care for you. We're here to help you straighten up your life. And then since you're leaving, leading such a good life, God will let you into heaven. How many people has that person condemned to hell by preaching a false Christianity? If that's not a work of iniquity, I don't know what is. Bad enough that he should go to hell for his misunderstanding, but that he spreads that misunderstanding and brings thousands of people chasing in the wrong way and runs them right down the middle of the Katy Freeway to hell. And I'm not suggesting that hell is Katy. Don't, don't, just don't even go there. It's an analogy. All great works of righteousness performed outside of Christ are vain and quite likely works of iniquity. Next passage in Matthew, please, brother. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. 
And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. We have a therefore. He's been moving into his conclusion, and that's it. That's the demarcation point. Therefore, based on everything I've said, based upon the rules I gave you for living your life at the very beginning, chapter 5, based on the condemnation of a works-based salvation system as espoused by the Pharisees, based upon the fact that public acts of righteousness, prayer, giving, fasting, count nothing for God if they're done to impress men. Based on his warning of setting yourself up as a private judge about the reality that there's only two ways out of this life, a good way and a not-so-good way, based on judging the fruits of your leaders and God's ability to judge the ultimate intentions. Based on all this information, he gives everybody a simple, straightforward illustration. There are no dark sayings in the Sermon on the Mount. Everything is crystal clear. It's aimed with simple examples right at a rural audience that makes Perfect sense. Because God is not trying, Christ is not trying here to uh, teach a select group, to, to push a message through that's only obvious to those in the know. He's teaching everybody, hey, this is the foundational truths of Christ's new way, which happens to be the old way. Israel's just lost their, their way. Where is your foundation? Where is your basis of life? Is it on the solid rock of God's truth? I mean, we talk about the rock being Christ, and the rock certainly is Christ. But in the larger example, the rock you are building your house on is God's revealed truth. Or it's on the shifting sands of works, human religion. I can please God by doing it this way. Oh, I <laughs> forgot what I wrote. There's no organ playing as Christ finishes up the Sermon on the Mount because organs weren't invented. But this is the invitational, right here. We come to the audience participation part of his sermon, decision time. And as James says in, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 20 through to 24, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, a mirror. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Yesterday, did anyone here check their watch and see what time it was? I did, except it wasn't a watch, it was my cell phone. Did anyone then check your watch again a minute or two later because you'd forgotten what time it was? 
Christ used the example of a man in a mirror. I would use the example of a man checking the, the time. Or a lady. Because you go, oh, what time it is? And you look, and that data only goes into short-term memory. And biologically, your short-term memory disappears between three and four minutes later. It's literally a biochemical process. It's been studied in the lab by secular scientists, and we know they're all right. Um, sorry, bad Eric. Um, it's a literal process where there's two types of memory. There's short-term memory and, short and long-term memory. And the they are, they're two completely different mechanisms. And the, the short-term memory literally purges itself, decays every three and a half minutes. So there's a reason you check your watch. And then if someone asks you what time it is, you have no idea. Because <laughs> it just went into short-term memory and left. And that, that's what I would say. If you're a hearer of the word and not a doer, you're like a man checking the time. He has no idea what time it is three, three minutes later. And most of us walk out that door and we have no idea what the sermon was three minutes later. Because it got into short-term memory and decayed away. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Saturday, as I was working on this lesson, I suddenly had a whole new appreciation of this passage. Because I have heard this passage preached so many times. And there's a wonderful truth in it, which is the authority which Jesus preached. And how different that was from the scribes and the Pharisees who had no authority themselves, but only could refer back to the people in history. But what I saw Saturday is there's a terrible tragedy in these two verses. You may not see it. But Jesus preaches the greatest sermon in the history of the world. And the people were astonished. But not at his message. His message went... They were astonished at his assumed authority. At the presentation of the message, they were not astonished at the content of the message. He gave a groundbreaking sermon that completely destroyed the entire foundation of their entire religion. And the apparent reaction was, eh. I cannot comprehend that. I'd like to hope that if I sat here and someone came up here and demolished the entire foundation of my life, I might react. I might get mad. <laughs> but I'd do something. The Bible records nothing other than their astonishment at his authority. 
And their astonishment at his, at his authority is just them not thinking it tr- through. Clearly, it's been too many years since the last prophet. Because the Old Testament Christian, excuse me, the Old Testament Israelites would have heard Jesus speaking and gone, that's a prophet. I can tell the attitude from here. He's speaking with total authority. Only one group of people do that. And don't mess with them because they'll send bears down to have a word with you. They could not see, the Israel of that age could not see that this was a course correction straight from the mouth of God. That God sent a prophet to tell all of Israel, you're doing it the wrong way. And they go, and go back to farming. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. So the Sermon on the Mount was not given as a list of moral imperatives or life skills coaching. It was a call to a changed path. I can't do it this way. i got to do it this way. And to salvation. Because works-based religion cannot meet God's bar. Public religion is eternal vanity. It's empty and it means nothing. And a judge will be judged harshly. So there must be another way. But if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, is that other way revealed? Can you be saved reading the Sermon on the Mount? Where's the message of salvation in there? It's not. See, year one, Christ's message was, there's a prophet here. Hello? And that's really year one. Year two, as typified by the Sermon on the Mount, remember, this was not a one-time event. I guarantee you, he preached this same message time after time after time because there's no newspapers, no radio, no TV, no mass media, certainly no internet. To reach the maximum number of people with this message, he's got to preach it over and over and over and over. The year two message is, what you're doing does not work. Doesn't please God, ain't going to get you to heaven. That should have brought enormous numbers of people following Christ. And to some extent it did. Year three was going to be the revelation of God's other way. But it's not in the Sermon on the Mount. That's going to be revealed in year three. And what we know is when Christ changed up his message in year three and talked about the alternate way, a whole bunch of people up and left. They couldn't take it. It was too hard a learning. So, application. <sighs> Need to catch my breath. At the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that the people who heard him were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. How did Jesus establish himself as authoritative? Okay, you think, and then you answer. So he went around preaching to everyone, I am the Son of God, right? No. 
I mean, he revealed that reality to his closest followers over time. But he wasn't preaching, I'm the Son of God. How did he establish his authority? What did Nicodemus say when he came to Jesus? What were the first words out of his mouth? Rabbi. We know that your teacher comes from God, for no man can do these miracles unless God be with him. There we are. Authority established by miracles. It's always the pattern for a prophet. Speak with authority. Show who you are by making predictions, prophecies, hence the name, and doing miracles. I am the hand of God. Let me show you. And now I am the mouth of God, and let me tell you everything you're doing wrong. And guess what the Sermon on the Mount is? It's the greatest sermon ever written down on why everything they were doing was wrong. Comments? What did I miss? Guys are staring at me like a box of donuts, completely glazed. They're sitting way in the back, ma'am. You got to speak up. 